I'm novelist Sherry Todd Bayshore, and this is Mystery Podcast. And today, I'm offering Chapter 2 from my 2018 novel, Year of the Dog. It's another suspense thriller. It's actually the sequel to The Count of Balpate that I already previously posted. Chapter 2 When Hank's cell phone rang, the sound was muffled by a tissue box that blocked it and several papers covering the tissue box. Ultimately, the call went to voicemail because Professor Rule couldn't find his cell phone in time to answer it before the ringing stopped. Then he had to call the caller. Claire, hi. It's Hank, phoning you back. I'm sorry I missed your call because my desk is such a mess. No, mess isn't accurate. My desk is a jungle. How are you? How's Ken? Ken's good. We're both good. The strong yet soft voice of Claire Gage, his former CSU student, who recently retired from the FBI, responded. Ken is thriving, happily retired from pediatrics, but as you know, he still wanted to make a contribution and keep relatively busy. So his newfound ability to paint is going well? Hank wondered if he had any latent artistic skill. Yes, but not the local scenery. He's illustrating a series of children's books about the human body. Our golf game has improved. However, considering where we started with golf, that wouldn't take much. There was a slight hesitation, then Claire continued. Your sweet wife called me yesterday. Cleo apologized for not keeping in touch, and then she invited Ken and I to your house next Monday for a Labor Day barbecue. Hank smiled at his end of the conversation. He suspected his wife, a self-styled therapist, was at work. We were reminiscing about Mendoza a few days ago. He and his daughters always came to our barbecues. Every Labor Day, Cleo and I fortify ourselves with fermented and distilled courage when both sides of our respective families collide here. Juan's daughters still come, but on their own now. Our talk must have reminded Cleo of you and Ken. Claire laughed. Ah, yes, I remember your stories. The first meeting was a tricky diplomatic occasion of Cleo's South Korean family with your Jamaican heritage. Don't you have a Scottish stepfather? Oh yeah, both he and my mother are 88 now. Our families are a mini-nations collection of highly opinionated personalities, which is why we only have all of them together on Labor Day. I'd be thrilled to see you both again. Are you and Ken free to come? We certainly are. There was another short hesitation. Coincidentally, Dr. Rule, I mean Hank, I was planning to call you anyway this week. I need to discuss something with you, she hurried on. I know you're retired, but I'd like to pick your brain if you don't mind. Only because you're a former student of mine, Hank chuckled. So far, for what it's worth, you're welcome to pick whatever you need. However, one of our family gatherings may not be the best time. Hank was intrigued. We could split the distance between your office in Estes Park and mine here. The owners of the dam store just west of Loveland have good coffee and bad donuts. I know the place well, but I'm retired soon, too. Again. My first term at Estes Park will end this fall, and I decided not to run for a second term. If you're available tomorrow, say around 9, I'd prefer if it's possible to meet you at Cleo's store. I know the coffee is just as good, and we won't be interrupted or overheard. Hank caught the concern in her tone, but made light of her chosen meeting place. Overheard, no, but interrupted, entirely possible, if we're in my wife's office at her noisy bookstore. Claire shook her head at her end of the call. You and Cleo are amazing. I wish everyone could have the kind of relationship you two have. 
Really? I don't think so. I keep trying to loan her out, but so far, no one accepts my offer. Hank laughed at his own joke this time. Nine in the morning will be perfect. Cleo and her manager, Lorna Torley, don't open the store until ten. Scene change. Fronting North College Avenue, Cottonwood Books, was Kitty Corner, one block west of the Silver Grill Cafe. Al's newsstand was its northern business neighbor, and the children's mercantile toy store was to the south. The store was open Wednesday to Saturday, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., and Sunday from noon to 5 p.m., then closed all day Monday and Tuesday. Inside the century-old building, floor-to-ceiling bookshelves lined both the south and north walls. A wide, round pine table, surrounded by mismatched chairs, was available for customers to use for research, homework, or browsing through a prospective purchase. In the center of the store, directly behind the table, were five rows of tall, wide bookcases, each displaying a specific genre. A deep bay window at the front allowed for seasonal displays of new inventory, with space for a weekly Saturday puppet show and morning story time. The checkout counter was U-shaped and more or less floated between the north wall of books and the library table, just inside the front door. Nearly every fixture that furnished the store came from antique auctions or was scrounged from thrift stores or built to fit into quirky corners and spaces. As directed, Claire Gage parked just off the alley behind the store. When she got out of her car, the late August morning felt cool with a hint of winter that could be early this year. She noticed that some leaves on a few aspens in Estes Park had already begun to turn their typical yellow gold. When the rear doorbell rang, Cleo had just opened two DHL boxes, delivered only a few minutes earlier. Bent over in the narrow back entrance, she had to stand on one box to open her back door. Claire, good morning. Pardon the tight squeeze. If you step into the powder room, I can reclose the back door, and then you can just step over that slightly smaller box. Fortunately, your legs are longer than mine. Cleo, thank you for allowing me to meet with Hank in your office. You're welcome. The older woman lowered her voice, but I need to thank you as well. Seeing you again may be just the tonic Hank needs to set himself upright again. He's gathered piles of research for a book, but Hank is still frazzled, trying to make sense of the meeting we had with a Bogodo Lama and the history that the Lama shared about Dia Matri Luna. Me too, Claire shivered. Whenever I stop to think about it, which is way too often. Between you and me, the Balpate case remains one investigation continuing to haunt FBI agent Margaret Hawkins. She has since been promoted and transferred to D.C. from Paris just a little over a year ago. Cleo took a deep breath. My office is at the top of those stairs, and my cappuccino maker is on and ready. She smiled and returned to unpacking her latest shipment of stock. Cleo's office occupied a long, narrow landing, eight feet by twenty feet at the top of the stairs on the store's second floor. A wide door set between two sets of pine bookcases that Hank had finished building one year earlier led to a one-bedroom apartment rented by Cleo's store manager, Lorna Torley. Hank had heard the voices of Claire and his wife, so when Claire was barely halfway up the stairs, the aroma of strong, fresh coffee welcomed her. Oh my gosh, this tastes so good. Your cappuccino alone was worth the drive. Claire sat at one end of a seven-foot antique church pew. Claire was tall and still slim, with the longer, sand-colored hair of her youth cut layered to her chin. She had changed her glass frames from the ones Hank remembered a year ago. However, 
neither her years with the FBI nor the years since her experience in the Balpate investigation had hardened her features. Her hazel eyes looked rested and relaxed. Hank waited for his own cup to fill, then he settled at the opposite end of the vintage oak bench facing Claire. Speaking of drive, what brings you to Fort Collins? Claire wasted no more time. I have a widowed aunt, Sarah Dale, who lives in Steamboat Springs. That's not significant unless you factor in that she and her three childhood lifelong friends, Hetty Schwartz, Grace Porter, and Lois Walsh, were born and raised and graduated from high school in Steamboat Springs. And, except for their three years of teacher's college in Greeley, when UNC Greeley was only a teacher's college, Aunt Sarah, Grace, and Hetty married their high school sweethearts. Then, too, they also taught school their entire adult working lives in Steamboat. Their fourth friend, Lois Walsh, never dated anyone steady in high school, and then after she graduated from college, out of the blue, she accepted a teaching job in Albuquerque, New Mexico. However, Lois's slightly more adventuresome spirit soon faded. After only three years away, Lois returned to Colorado. By then, the only teaching position open, even close to Steamboat, was in Walden, so she taught there until she retired. Anyway, that's enough background. A week ago this past Tuesday evening, my Aunt Sarah called me because Lois Walsh had disappeared. After the four friends retired, they began playing bridge every Tuesday afternoon and Friday morning. Each week, the ladies took turns driving. Last Friday, it was my Aunt Sarah's turn to drive, so she picked up Grace and Hetty, then stopped to collect Lois to go to lunch before their card game. Aunt Sarah waited out front as usual, then she honked. Lois didn't come out of her front door as usual. The other three left and went for lunch to the restaurant, then immediately called Lois's landline and were surprised to get a recording that it was no longer in service. None of the four gals have cell phones, but they do have email and follow Facebook. However, later that afternoon, after bridge, Lois still hadn't responded to any messages left by Hetty, Grace, or my Aunt Sarah, or anyone else in their bridge club. Since Lois was an only child and had no other relatives, the next morning Aunt Sarah reported her to the Steamboat Springs Sheriff as a missing person. Twenty-four hours later, the sheriff had a local locksmith open Lois's front door. Inside the small house Lois had inherited from her parents, nothing looked out of place or disturbed, and her car was still in the garage. The local sheriff took statements from all 28 members of the Steamboat Springs Bridge Club, as well as Lois's former principal and other staff in Walden. As of today, it's been 10 calendar days since Lois went missing. The sheriff hasn't come up with any leads he can follow. Then, Aunt Sarah called me again. In with her morning mail, my aunt got this large brown envelope addressed to her. Claire opened a quilted Vera Bradley bag, retrieving the envelope. There's no return address, and I could just make out some of the blurred stamp cancellation that looks like part of a date that was only four days after Lois went missing. Claire turned the envelope and pointed to the upper corner. Then here, there's something with the letters ending in O-N-A, followed by some numbers. Inside the brown envelope was a journal that Lois Walsh kept. The journal began in 1960, just after she turned 14. The first 20 pages from 1960 to 1962 were pretty standard teen stuff until 1963. 
Four months into their twelfth grade, Lois began secretly dating not a boy from their school, but a man she called T.J., who was several years her senior. Dr. Rule finished his cappuccino and guessed that the rest of Claire's had gone cold. Oh, now the story's getting interesting, but where do any of my history skills come into play? Claire looked down at her coffee cup. She took a sip of the cold drink, then swallowed the rest of her cup's contents. What do you know about priests in the Catholic Church, historically speaking? The blunt left-field question caught Hank by surprise. In the context of, he asked, were some of them ever married? Yes and no, historically speaking. Hank stood and returned his cup to the sideboard by Cleo's desk, then reached for Claire's empty cup. The vast majority of people forget that historically early Christians were Jews, and the Jews considered marriage more of a spiritual state than celibacy. There's also some confusion in general public between celibacy and chastity. However, the Catholic Church makes a definite distinction between the two. To be celibate is not to be married to another mortal. Chastity is not participating in sexual intercourse. Historically speaking, during the first two centuries, there were constant systematic changes in the emerging Catholic doctrine. Christian leadership began to promote chastity as the gift of God, since the life of a priest was to conform to that of the accepted unmarried Christ life, then celibacy was merged with chastity and both became the new spiritual state as opposed to marriage. However, chastity was only the new rule in the West. Claire looked confused. It's complicated. Hank took out a bottle of water for each of them from Cleo's small office fridge. In Eastern Europe, candidates for priesthood could marry with permission. However, if they had already been ordained, they couldn't become bishops. In Western Europe, celibacy became law in 1074, mandated by Pope Gregory. Much later, though, that same canon law was eventually applied to the entire Western Hemisphere and all lands conquered by the New World Explorers. So from 1074 to present day, all newly ordained Catholic priests, and nuns too, were to be celibate and chaste. No marriage, no sex. Hank removed the cap from his bottled water. Am I correct in concluding your aunt read the entire journal and the secret life of her childhood friend has been a bit of a wee shock? This ends the interesting turn in Chapter 2 for the Year of the Dog. Tomorrow, I'll dive into Chapter 3 and intrigue you even more, hopefully. Thanks again for listening.